Welcome to Trafe, a debatably Jewish podcast. So we're back. Uh, it's been at least a month. Definitely. Episode 17. I am Sam Bick with David Zinman as my side partner person sitting side here. Part- <laughs> well, first of all, we said we were not supposed to introduce ourselves this way because you said it was to establishment radio. I'm not going to say I didn't say that. I don't necessarily remember saying it, but um, times change. It's definitely outside of the house style that we have created for ourselves. It is. It is. But how is your, how is your pace off, Sam? It was actually pretty good. We had a slight issue because my grandma kind of got hoodwinked by a chassid who sold her copies of a Haggadah that had a font that was too small. Yeah, for our non-Jewish listeners, a Haggadah is the guidebook for the Passover Seder. It's a long ritual you do over the course of an evening. So my grandma bought 20 of the same or whatever, <laughs> and they were all really hard to read. And no one has the memory or skills to recite it all from memory. So we had an interesting mm-hmm. affair. How about you, David? It was good. I, I went back to Thornhill and spent some time with my mom and my sisters. Beautiful. Um, did the alternative Seder route, third Seder. Okay. But the thing the thing I wanted to say is that I learned from my brother-in-law that in a lot of Hasidic communities in New York, they have deals with the police not to enter. So they have the Shomrim, which is kind of Hasidic police, and they have Hatzalah, which is kind of Hasidic EMS. And I think the only time they enter is in cases of things like murder, and, and even then it's uh, pretty heavily negotiated. That seems not entirely related to Pesach. Well, it, yeah, but we were doing an alternative Seder, and so we were talking a lot about the themes of liberation and talking about racial justice and, and what that means. And it was just interesting to think that racialized communities, both here in the United States, who are always struggling against racist policing for more freedom from that style of policing, that the Hasidic example is just a really interesting one because it's benefiting from some aspects of Ashkenazi Jewish ascent to whiteness while also experiencing a lot of anti-Semitism and bearing some of the brunt of, you know, xenophobic white supremacy at the same time. So anyway, it's just, it was just interesting to learn. It would be really interesting to talk with someone who kind of knows more about this. It definitely offers some kind of model, a strange one and a particular one, but yeah. Please write in. Before we get into the show, I just wanted to give all of our devoted listeners an update on a news story out of Montreal. Wait, what news story? Take a guess. Out of Montreal? That we've covered before. Is it about that hair salon with the human rights complaint? 100%. Now, people listening... Wait, actually? We did not coordinate on this before. This is <laughs> this is the story. David guessed it right. And I am here to give you updates. Do you want to remind everyone where we were left off in this wonderful narrative? Okay, here's my memory of the story. There was a salon that was Jewish-owned. It was called Spa Ora Zen. It's now called Spa Live Zen. Anyway... There was a Jewish worker there, and they... Richard Zilberg. They wouldn't allow the Jewish worker to work on Shabbos. But they would let other employees work on Shabbos. So this worker brought a complaint to the Human Rights Commission, and did they rule on it? They ruled on it. The Quebec Commission of Human Rights, which is the body that determines things of this nature, decided in October that Richard was owed $20,000. Wow. Yes. Uh, The interesting part is that the owners have yet to fork over any of this cash. So what's what's the enforcement mechanism by the... There is none to my knowledge, and my knowledge comes entirely from the Canadian Jewish News and Janice Arnold. (laughs) Always a reliable source. So Janice Arnold was writing to update us on the situation, and it was basically that Richard has yet to receive the $20,000 that he's owed by Spa or a Zen, which is now Spa Live Zen. All right. Thanks for the update. Anytime, David. 
I mean, there are so many things that we could continue talking about because we've been on break for a month, but maybe we should just jump into telling everybody what's on the show. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about the Liberation Seders that were organized by If Not Now during the week of Passover. And uh, also we're going to be talking a bit about the Jewish media coverage of everyone's favorite Jewish political candidate for the Democratic nomination. So this is your episode of Trafe for the 3rd of ER 5776. Uh, so we've talked on the show before about the presidential campaign that's going on in the United States right now. Uh, we've talked a bit about Donald Trump. And, and how big his hands are. And, and, and also the Jewish community's relationship with him. And today we're going to talk a bit about Bernie Sanders. David, I thought we'd never make it here. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'll be a little more specific that we're talking about the Jewish media's relationship to covering Bernie Sanders. Is it time where I get to crack out my Bernie Sanders impression? I mean, I think maybe that time will never come. Listen, David, I think we need to encourage artistic growth. You're making such a sad face. You just do it. So it's something to the effect of the 1% of the 2% of the 6%. That's actually not that terrible. You just got to focus on percentages. That's really all I got. That's good. That's good. Um, so to give you a bit of an idea of what, uh, the Jewish media's coverage has been like about Bernie Sanders so far, mostly it's been unsurprisingly about his Jewishness. So from the beginning, Sanders's Jewishness has been challenged. The fact that he didn't necessarily have certain markers or didn't present in a certain way was off-putting for members of the media and leaders in the institutional Jewish community. And at least in our generation, Bernie Sanders is the first Jewish presidential candidate to have a decent shot of getting nominated. But Joseph Lieberman's example still reverberates in our memories. As does John Stewart's impression of him. Uh, but the thing about Lieberman was that his Jewishness was taken for granted, and his relationship to the institutional Jewish community was one that was understood. Uh, but the other thing which we started this conversation engaging with is how the media talks about his Jewishness, or should I say how the Jewish media talks about his Jewishness. And this is something that is a little less contested now that the months have wore on and he has said that, his, that some of his family were victims of the Holocaust and maybe that it's, people have been exposed to him more. But it does feel like the critique of his Jewishness as it was eight months ago is not there anymore. Yeah, and as the questions of his Jewish identity have gradually begun to recede, questions about his exact relationship to Zionism have come into more of a forefront and are being highly contested. To talk about this a little more, we're joined by Jesse Meyerson, who is a New York-based activist, author, and podcaster. At the end of March, Jesse wrote an article in The Village Voice called The Heresy and Evangelism of Bernie Sanders, and we thought we'd talk to him a bit about the aftermath of publishing that article. Thanks for joining us. So good to be joining you. Thank you for having me. You had uh, you had a little bit of a back and forth with the editor of The Forward. If you could just start out by explaining what prompted that initial article in The Village Voice. Sure. Well, a critique had uh, been coming at Senator Sanders from assorted members of the Jewish community. And the critique basically held that it was shameful for Sanders to downplay his Judaism in the way that he does. Uh, for instance, describing his father as a Polish immigrant, when, of course, his father would not have been regarded as Polish by Poles at the time. And other things like that, you know, Sanders is basically a secular person who doesn't campaign in religious terms as much as, say, Ted Cruz or even Hillary Clinton. And so members of the Jewish community were upset about this and uh, offering various hypotheses as to why he was, uh, you know, downplaying his Judaism and actually less offering hypotheses than just uh, simply criticizing him for it. But it seems to me that there was a space for a defense of Judaism in the style that Sanders 
enacts his Jewish commitment, which is through a basically secular commitment to fighting for justice, eliminating oppression, fighting for redemption, and all of the themes that sort of appear in leftist Judaism and socialist Judaism over the last couple of hundred years. Um, and just to justify that his, that the way that he treats Judaism is not somehow an aberration, but it's actually got a lineage. And, uh, and I just wanted to try and contextualize a defense of the way in which he acts as Jewish commitment as specifically Jewish and not as a, a way to suppress Judaism. I mean, another thing that's come up for us reading a lot of the coverage around Sanders is a lot of there's a lot of contention around the way that the Jewish media talks about Bernie Sanders's relationship to Zionism. And this is definitely something that was present in your discussion with J.J. Goldberg. Can you talk a bit about the disagreement that you had with him? Yeah, no question. So I described Sanders in the Village Voice piece as a non-Zionist. And I know that that's probably not technically precise, but I do think it's the most accurate in the sort of lexicon that we're working from. What I mean is this. He has never in his career, which has, as you know, been like 30, 40 years in politics, prioritized ethno-nationalist commitments to Israel as a Jewish state. If a, an interviewer kind of presses him on it and hounds him into saying, does he think Israel should be a Jewish state, he'll, he'll say yes. But it's so peripheral to the sorts of politics that he has been advancing for 40 years that it seems to me that his commitment is not in the kind of ethno-nationalism that the word Zionist connotes today, in any case. But do you feel like there's a little bit of a danger of glamorizing or or emphasizing that position in a in a kind of like general politics narrative when it falls maybe on a more diluted concept of Palestinian solidarity? Sure, yeah, maybe maybe there's some danger. I mean, I think yes, we sh- we shouldn't praise Sanders as like an anti-Zionist surely or uh you know, a one-state solution person. And he somebody asked, I think it was Anderson Cooper at a debate asked him if he thought BDS was anti-Semitic and he said, "Yeah, there is a little anti-Semitism in there." So it's not, it's not to say that he's the radical on this question that I would want him to be, surely, or that many radicals would want him to be. It's just that the difference between him and, and the standard narrative is so stark that I really do think that's the salient fact uh, with regards to his candidacy on this issue. I mean, the other question that I kind of have, I think this gets to the root of part of the discussion you had with the editor of The Forward, J.J. Goldberg, about whether or not Sanders was a liberal Zionist. He was taking issue with your article in The Village Voice for not acknowledging the existence or the fact that liberal Zionism continues to be a position of note within the left. And I just wonder about the non-Zionist label versus liberal Zionism. And I wonder if you think that's a lens in which one could view the Bernie Sanders candidacy. I do. I mean, I I think that there's uh, Goldberg specifically uh, identified labor Zionism, uh, which is, I guess, the term that's used in Israel for more than in the United States, where I I guess we prefer the term liberal Zionism. And I think it's true that he, he himself is not exactly the, like, hardcore socialist, or as Donald Trump calls him, communist, <laughs> that, like, you know, hardened leftists might want him to be. He's a liberal. He's, like, a really good social progressive liberal who has had a career that is adjacent to radicals and interfaces with radicals and takes radical concerns quite seriously. So in that sense, I think maybe liberal Zionism is, would be fair, but I think probably is not actually the most accurate 
I guess for me, when I when I think and I talk about liberal Zionism here in in North America, to me, it's kind of a stand-in for talking about uh, ideological slice of Zionist life, where you know you'll talk about the occupation being horrendous, you'll talk about the settler movement as being terrible, but the right of return is not in the table for discussion, where one state is not in the table for discussion. And so, to me, viewing Sanders as a non-Zionist versus a liberal Zionist had the function of painting him as farther left on this issue than he actually is, uh, which fits into, I think, a trend in the left's relationship to progressive candidates like Sanders. Where we uh, sort of overemphasize their admirable qualities. Yeah, yeah, because we, you know, they're make to make them closer to perhaps the candidates we wish they would be. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm definitely open to the view that my perspective is being skewed by the sort of heat and exuberation of a hotly contested primary. Certainly, I think a lot of people who support Hillary Clinton, who I've previously regarded as very smart and astute commentators, Paul Krugman say, uh, have shown themselves to muddy their thinking considerably because of their emotional or otherwise investment in the candidacy. So I don't want to say that I'm less immune to that sort of thing than Paul Krugman. I'm sure I'm not. But if that's the if that's the biggest infraction that I've sort of overstating his uh, admirable qualities, then, uh, then I, I still think I'm in pretty good shape. <laughs> and J.J. Goldberg thinks you're not chopped liver, so that's a win. Yeah, yeah at least there's that. <laughs> uh, just to, to finish off, I, I'm curious, after reading your piece in Jacobin about the firing of Simone Zimmerman, I'm wondering if that heat and exuberance that you were talking about around the Sanders candidacy has changed since that firing, and if your opinion and viewpoint about Sanders' politics around Israel have changed at all. Um, the the day when Simone was quote unquote suspended, I was absolutely furious with the Sanders campaign, and actually, I was on the for work. I was um, traveling at the moment with the Bernie bus, which is a bus operated by the National Nurses Union going around the country campaigning for Sanders. And so I was sort of in, in the peak of my exhilaration with the campaign. And then this happened, and it definitely was a crushing blow. And I had to hope to myself that the next morning I'd be able to get up and rediscover the, the enthusiasm that I had for Sanders. And that night was the debate that they had in Brooklyn, where, again, he broke these taboos around Gaza. He he, uh, you know, said that Palestinians had to be treated with dignity uh, against Clinton, who, who cannot be moved to say that Palestinians deserve dignity and, and freedom. So it was, you know, it's very conflicting. I, I think that they made a huge mistake firing Simone. I think that she is one of the great leaders of our generation, even though we have uh, we dis- disagree on some pretty critical issues. Um, I, I don't think it made me call into question Sanders' personal views on Israel so much as the fortitude of his campaign in like pursuing the line that they wanted to pursue in their hiring choices as well as in his rhetoric. Before we let you go, is there anywhere where people can read your work, see what you're up to? I guess the best way is just to follow me on Twitter at J.A. Meyerson, but um, kind of all over the place. <laughs> well, Jesse, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you for having me on. With an open head, it helps Josh Jarm. It's time for Shkoyach. Shkoyach. So we've reached Shkoyach. It's the most popular part of the show. It's our, Allegedly. It's our favorite part of the show. That is fact. And uh, let's just jump right into it. Uh, Sam, what's your Shkoyach for today? David, let's not do this again. What do you mean? I feel like we need to 
introduce the segment. Oh, it's, to... it's somewhat unique, and I think that for new listeners, we should probably yeah. provide some context. But, okay, we have received so much feedback from so many people that explaining it every time is complete overkill. I don't believe you're telling the truth. Wait, like you, you think I'm making up that people said that? I'm pretty sure you're in the room when at least one person said that. I, A, don't remember that, and B, I think I need a little evidence. I mean, first of all, I know that you checked the tray of emails, and I, I, I'm pretty sure that we got at least one email, no? Not that I recall, David. Okay, but okay, so you know what? I'm going to play a clip from an anonymous listener on this subject. Also, I agree with David. I don't think you have to explain Squaya because I think either people have already been listening or they can kind of get the point. It's like, you know, like an over-under type situation or shout out. So I don't know that you have to explain it. A little humbled right now. I mean, that's one person, but what I'm saying is that it represents actually the views of a lot of listeners. All right, listen, how about this? I will let it go for this episode. Okay, well, welcome to Shkoyach. The Shkoyach uh, Zone. Part of the show where we each give a Shkoyach to someone. If you don't know what Shkoyach means, just type it into Google. And if that doesn't yield anything, just listen to the last episode. And every episode before that, because we always explain it and we're not going to do it anymore. Anyway, uh, what's your Shkoyach for today, Sam? Do I have a doozy for you, David? Uh, I'm glad to hear it. Yes. My story involves a bunch of interesting things. Although, I like to preface it by saying that there is a serious dark element to the story. And oh. I'm generally going to be making light of it, so I apologize in advance. Okay, well, now I'm not sure which side of this I'm going to come down. No, on. no, the funny part. I mean, <laughs> okay. basically, I want to emphasize the funnier part with the recognition that there are people who are negatively affected by the funniness. So, David, the story begins in a little town called Borough Park, which is... is not that a neighborhood? It's a neighborhood. Okay. I just thought for cinematic effect that okay. I'd but go with a little town. That's in New York City, right? It's in Brooklyn, I believe. Okay. And it involves a major macher whose name is Jeremy Reichenberg. Mm -hmm. And Jeremy Reichenberg, who we'll call JR for convenience sake for the rest of the story, had a particular relationship with the NYPD, oh. who are the New York Police Department, in which he was caught up in a bribery scandal. The little piece of this story that I got comes from the ditmisparkcorner.com slash blog. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that Jeremy Reichenberg has a nephew. Now, Jeremy Reichenberg's nephew, who I said I'd call JR has gotten himself in a little bit of trouble, David. He has assaulted several people. Okay. So this is kind of the dark, unfortunate part of the story that is going to get lost in some of the more humor. And his nephew's name is Shlomo. Before we get into Shlomo, though, do I need to know anything else about JR? No, no. You just need to know that he's, he's a businessman in Borough Park who's got caught up in an NYPD sting operation. What was the operation about? Uh, bribery stuff. Okay, so who is who is Shlomo? So Shlomo has what the New York Daily News refers to, in addition to DitmasParkCorner.com, as a gang. And they're a gang of teenage kids that are called the Gruplach. Are they a Hasidic gang? Correctamundo, David. And is that related at all to the sting operation? It's related in that he and his gang have not been charged with two street assaults, and the paper is alleging that he got off because his uncle was Jeremy Rechenberg. Oh, so he cut a deal with the NYPD? It's implied. There's no facts here. But basically, <laughs> I mean, well, because these are just allegations. But basically, so Shlomo and... Sounds like a great website. So the group block are just walking around attacking people at whims, apparently. One of the victims, whose name is Micha Kaplan, 45-year-old, banking-type fellow, they injured him pretty badly. He ended up in the hospital. I'm just going to read this now because it really does it justice. During the attack, they allegedly yelled Litvak, the Yiddish term Whoa. for Lithuanian Jews who are not Hasidic. What? Yeah. 
Yeah. This so the group in- is running around in Borough Park, beating people up and calling them litvaks. That's unbelievable. Yes. So you're saying that allegedly the NYPD are not intervening in this, even though they have reports and evidence because JR cut some deal with them to prevent it from happening. Yep. But the question that I'm left with is, what is the current status of the group I have no idea. Uh, if anyone has any idea, please let us know. Yeah, or if you know if this is something that makes sense and has a context in uh, Hasidic spaces or communities, or if this is something as weird to you as it is to us. All right, David, I don't know how you will be able to top that shkoyach, but um, go ahead. Oh, okay. Uh, so my shkoyach for today goes to the Young Israel of Montreal congregation. It's a huh. shul. Where is that? It's, it's, a, it's a Montreal shul. Do you know it? No, that's why I asked you. Okay. I, I hadn't heard of it before. Could uh, be a smaller kind of basement operation situation. Or it might be like more Orthodox or Hasidic yeah. than maybe you would have grown up around. That is true. But the reason this grabbed my attention is because while I was in Thornhill for Pesach, I heard people talking about how in Montreal, it's really difficult to get a lot of the good kosher wines. In fact, there's a whole underground operation where you have to buy them from the basement of some shuls because for people who are listening from outside of Canada, in most of the provinces of Canada, alcohol is highly regulated. You can only buy it from these government-operated stores, and the government-operated stores here don't carry a lot of kosher wines like they do in Ontario, so it's the only way to get them is through this underground shul operation. And I guess probably the reason why the SAQ isn't stocking kosher wines is probably a question of labels because in Quebec, everything has to be labeled in both French and English. Yeah, exactly. So I came across a piece of information that there was a raid um, (laughs) of the Young Israel of Montreal shul and they seized 650 cases of kosher wine that were being sold illegally in the basement. So the SPVM, the cops in Montreal, seized 650 cases of wine on Passover. The police raided the wow. shul, which they were monitoring and surveying for over a month. Eh. And they seized all of the alcohol, which is interesting because they seized it after Passover, which is the time that they were specifically selling it for. Because uh, for people who aren't familiar, on Passover, there's even more of a scrutiny as to what wines you're allowed to be drinking. Wait, David, so you're saying the SPVM waited until after the holiday? Yeah. When all of it would have been sold? They waited until after the seders and the first chunk of Yom Tovim or observant days of the holiday. So they have like a cultural affairs bureau. It's the whole thing is just so interesting to me. And but the the reason for the shkoyach, I'm actually giving the shkoyach to the shul because when Janice Arnold from the Canadian Jewish News called them earlier today on May second when we're recording this. They weren't answering the phone and were responding to all phone calls with a taped message that said, we are not connected in any way with the wine store located in the basement of this building and have no information about it. That's a smart voicemail. So shkoyach to the Young Israel of Montreal Synagogue for this uh, plausibly deniable message on their answering machine about the illegal wine operation happening in the basement of their shul. We spent a bunch of time on the show talking about Pesach, also talking about whether we should refer to it as Pesach or Passover, and something that was very clear if you were reading the Jewish internet this year. Or even the regular internet. Or even the regular internet. 
was that a bunch of people across the United States organized what they refer to as liberation satyrs. Yeah, and it was all being organized by a new group called If Not Now. I didn't have a real grasp, I think, of what the organization stood for, whether it was an organization, where it was coming from. So when I was watching all the liberation satyr coverage over Pesach, I had a lot of questions. And so we figured that it would be a good idea to talk to someone who might be able to answer some of those questions. So for the interview today, we're joined by Michelle Weiser, who is a member of the Boston chapter of If Not Now and participated in the Liberation Seder there. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I was wondering if you could start by talking a little bit about the Liberation Seder that was organized in Boston a couple weeks ago. Sure, yeah. Well, to start, If Not Now is a group of young American Jews who are organizing to end our community's support for the occupation in Israel-Palestine. Um, and we're really building a popular movement of Jews who know that the only way to ensure a vibrant future for our community is to fight for the freedom and dignity for all people and calling for an end to the occupation. And so the liberation theaters that were held across the country were really to call attention to American Jewish support of the occupation and to say Dayenu and enough. Passover is really the holiday to celebrate liberation. And when we think about Israelites, the exodus from slavery, we know that no one can be truly free and truly liberated while others are oppressed. That's why we held liberation theaters in six cities across the country, targeting various Jewish institutions. And in Boston, you focused particularly on an APAC office? We did. There were about 75 to 100 of us outside of APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. You know, when you think about the occupation, we know that there's a lot of different pillars that are upholding the occupation. Huge things like imperialism, colonialism, the U.S. military-industrial complex, racism. Um, and then one big pillar within that is the American Jewish support of the occupation. And within that pillar, there's things like federation, education system, summer camps, birth rate. And so the reason that we were targeting Jewish institutions and APAC is to bring to light that the establishment, the Jewish establishment, no longer speaks for the majority of the American Jewish public. And so we're trying to chip away at that pillar of American Jewish support for the occupation and move the public, so to speak, so that these institutions like the federations, like the Hillels that we were at this week, like the ADL, can no longer say that they represent the voice of the unified Jewish community. I mean, I think something that, that was definitely reflected in the Jewish media and also a lot of mainstream media's coverage of the Liberation Satyrs was that the tactic of focusing on pressuring and confronting the institutional Jewish community in the United States is not something that tends to be at the forefront of a lot of leftist Jewish organizing. And I'm wondering if we can talk a bit more about the broader political outlook that that tactic's emerging from in this new group. One thing that we talk a lot about in our trainings is movement ecology and how, if not now, fits into the wider scope of Jewish organizations that are working for justice in Israel and Palestine. And one thing that I think is unique about If Not Now, I mean, first of all, it's all about moving 
the American Jewish community. So while a lot of other groups have tactics that may focus outside the Jewish community, like divestment campaigns that are focusing on TIA prep for HP or Caterpillar, like non-Jewish institutions, the sole focus of Islam now is moving the American Jewish public. And with that, you know, we bring together Jews with a wide variety of experiences and opinions, but we just have a clear message that Jewish communities must oppose the occupation and stand up for freedom and dignity for all people. And so kind of within that, our members believe in a wide range of solutions. They're active with many different groups. I'm a member of JVP, um, but when I'm training, I'm standing next to somebody who's on staff at the New Israel Fund, and we have people who were very active members in J Street, and we have people, um, I just had a meeting with folks from IJAM, and so we're all in communication and figuring out where do we strategically align and what are our differences so that we can be holding up mirrors to each other and holding each other accountable to the work that we say that we're supposed to do and recognize that we all play really important roles in this kind of larger ecology of Jews doing justice for Palestine work. In that way, would you describe it as more of a coalition? I would describe it more as a movement. So, you know, we're not trying to build a new organization we're a decentralized movement, which gives us a lot of our strengths. Like we don't have any one spokesperson. We don't have any one person at the helm who's leading anything. Anybody could start an if not now chapter as long as we have a set of principles. But the point is to not get tied up in the nonprofit industrial complex. So I think coalition is like one way of looking at it, how we're working in partnership with a lot of other groups. And I have my JVP t-shirt that I wear at one rally, and then I'll put on the If Not Now t-shirt as I'm going to um, another rally. And we can all be moving our bodies as needed, but as a community, we're all kind of united under the movement banner of If Not Now. Could you talk a little bit about how If Not Now has grown in the last couple of months or the last year? I'm not exactly sure about the time frame. Yeah, so If Not Now was first formed in 2014 in the summer of the most recent war on Gaza with a public ritual that was happening in a few cities across the country. And since then, some of the strategizers and thinkers did some building out, kind of fighting actually against urgency to say, if we're going to build a thing, how can we build it in a way that is accountable, is strategic, is winnable, <laughs> and smart. And so now, just this past December, if not now, it's kind of come back out. And we started with a training for trainers, essentially, that happened in Boston um, and had people from across the country who learned what If Not Now's specific piece of the strategy is in the wider movement ecology and what our core principles are and how we can be bringing people in. And now those trainers are running trainings across the country. Our culture of mass training is really kind of what makes the movement special. Everybody who comes to an orientation training meets other Jews who are committed to justice and kind of begins to build a community both through ritual and through action while they're exploring our strategy, structure, principles, and culture. So when we have actions like the ones that we just held across the country for Passover, 
those are great ways that we then pique curiosity and bring more and more people in and kind of get the snowball effect going of bringing people into the movement. We're, we're all about escalation. Escalation is how we make change. And so right now, because we are starting kind of from a new, obviously not a new in terms of resistance and resiliency and people who are doing Palestine solidarity work, but and new in terms of this new movement. And so anything that we do is viewed as escalation and building out our power. But I wonder, because you were saying that you're also a part of Jewish Voice for Peace, and you're, you're using the example of, you know, you'll wear a different t-shirt at each demonstration. And I mm-hmm. wonder if the issue of the right of return comes into question in those different spaces, because I know that in terms of what Jewish Voice for Peace pushes for and seems to be more focused on that as an issue, whereas with If Not Now, mm-hmm. it's more focused on the occupation. And for you, being in both spaces, has there have there been conflict around that? There actually hasn't been conflict around that. I think people, this is, again, where we lean heavily on movement ecology and are appreciative that JVP is working for things like right of return, but because If Not Now is trying to build a movement that can hold the American Jewish public and because everybody in the American Jewish public is united around the right of return or even BDS, for example, like if not now, it doesn't take an explicit stance on that so that we can maintain a wide enough net to catch people who are with us on the which side are you on, freedom and dignity for all or MS occupation piece and let other organizations then, if they're so drawn to wanting to do more like right of return work that then people can do that. And if folks who are listening are interested, what is the best way to get in touch with a local chapter or with news about things going on? We have a website that you can go look at. It's ifnotnowmovement.org. We're on Facebook. Every chapter has its own Facebook page. But the website, ifnotnowmovement.org, will have central home base to find out more information. Great. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, So this is a part of the show where we make a recommendation. And today's recommendation is for the new issue of the zine Doikite. We actually got a friend of the show, Jenna Brigger, on the line, who's actually did the art for the show, the picture of me and Sam, uh, if you interact with the podcast on the internet. Which is the only place that people can interact with it. But anyway, thanks so much for, for joining us, Jenna. Thanks for having me. Can you talk a little bit about the Doikite project? Yeah, sure. So Doikite is a zine project that I started in 2012. I was doing a lot of work in Jewish studies. I had spent the summer in Poland at the Auschwitz Jewish Center, and I was writing about this on the Dybbuk and doing all of this work in the area of Yiddish studies and Jewish studies and thinking a lot about my own anti-Zionist politics, about queer identity, all of these things. And reading a lot of anti-Zionist writing that was written by older folks or straight folks or just people that I identified with, but they weren't my voice. So I started this zine, Doikite, the Yiddish word for hereness, and it's taken from the pre-World War II Polish Jewish group, the Bund, the Labor Bund, um, that believes that Jews have a right to live and a political commitment to work for change here and now. Um, So I really like it because it references a politics of place of saying, you know, we can't rely on the idea of a utopian homeland. And so instead, we're going to stay where we are and work hard in solidarity 
with people with other identities and other positionalities for the world we want to see and live in. So I know that the way that the zine has worked has been with themed issues. Uh, what's the theme for the new issue? Yeah, so the theme for the new issue is decolonization. The first issue was just Stoichite, and the second was Diaspora. And so for the issue on decolonization, we're really hoping for submissions that think about the decolonization of land and bodies and minds and language, questions of solidarity and borders, fighting settler colonialism, refugees, dispossession, and then also the relationship between decolonizing Jewishness and decolonizing Palestine. I hope that people really take up these conversations about the relationship between Jewishness and Palestinian solidarity in a really critical way. And, you know, I know there's a lot of folks who have been talking a lot about the kind of problematic ownership that Jews have over Palestine as an issue, which kind of translates into an ownership of place. Um, So I want people to like contend with those hard questions. And I think a zine is a cool place to do that because, you know, I obviously take academic and political writing, but also poetry and art and personal essays and comics and transcriptions from radio shows. So there's a lot of different ways to approach all of those hard questions in the face of a zine. On that note, how can people read old issues or submit to the current issue? Yeah, you can either buy the, you can either buy the zine from me um, through my website, which is jennabrager.com, or it's carried at some independent radical bookstores like Blue Stockings or Quimby's in Chicago. Blue Stockings is in New York. If you email me, you can get a PDF for free, a printable PDF of the zine. And the submission process is just email things to me at jenna.brager at gmail.com. And the deadline, or, or is there a deadline for, for submissions? There is a deadline. Um, so the deadline is going to be June 1st. I'm going to try to have the issue out by the end of the year, but all of the submission parameters are up on jennabrager.com. Um, also, I give a lot of preference, I suppose we shall say, to the voices of queer folks, folks of color, non-Western voices, and also if people who are involved in Palestine solidarity and are not Jewish are interested in submitting, they should get in touch with me because I have some interest in talking about cross-diasporic solidarity movements. And maybe when you come to Montreal in a couple months, we can do a live discussion of the submissions that you end up getting. Right. It can be a two-part. We'll talk about Stoichite submissions, and then you can follow me as I get Trace tattooed on my butt. (laughs) That sounds terrific. I look forward to this live broadcast. (laughs) It'll be interesting because, you know, there won't be any visuals. We'll just have to describe everything that's happening. It's the magic of radio. The magic of radio. Yeah, you can capture anything. Great. I'm looking forward to reading the new zine. I'm looking forward to publishing the new zine and reading all the amazing submissions that people send me. David, I think that just about wraps up episode 17. Yeah, which means that we're about to start work on our 18th episode. And you know what that means. What does that mean, David? Well, 18 in uh, what's called gematria, or the understanding of numeric value built into Hebrew characters, is high, 
which means life and has a lot of spiritual symbolism within Jewish thought. I think we're biting a little bit into the introduction for episode 18, but I'll let it stand. So anyway, keep your eyes peeled for our upcoming Chai episode. We're also going to be trying to put out something every week, maybe balancing a full episode with a short of some kind. Allegedly. Allegedly. This might be too high of a bar to set for ourselves, but we're going to go for it. Yeah, and again, if you have any feedback about the episode, about what we're doing in general, please write us, tell us if you have any criticism, we'd love to hear it, uh, trafepodcast at gmail.com. I also forgot to do this in the last few weeks, but please, please, please give us a positive rating on iTunes. You all listen to podcasts. You know what to do. Yeah, Sam had to write a review himself, apparently. David, that's old news. We're looking to the present. <laughs> you mean to the future? To the present. You're putting your, your hand forward, though. To the present. Okay. Give us a positive rating on iTunes and tell your aunt or uncle about the show. See you in two weeks. Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism and occupied Ganegahaga territory. As always, thanks to Sex Syndrome for the music, to Kara Page for social media consultancy, to Claire Hertig for design, and a new thank you to So Called for the music you heard in the introduction to the Shkoya. Please follow us on your favorite podcast app and on all the social medias at Treyf, T-R-E-Y-F. Google man stabbed at Kiddush following herring dispute. I mean, there's not a lot of meat there, but just the idea is hilarious.